Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi, welcome to today's episode of The Mentalist. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Sam Wiley. Sam is a Principal Fellow of the Melbourne Business School, an Associate Professor of the University of Melbourne and Director of Windlestone Education. Sam's research and consulting is focused on banking, wealth management, corporate finance and the GFC. Sam has worked with many corporations both near and afar. His commentary appears regularly in the Australian Financial Review and on national radio and television. So I hope you enjoy sitting down, having a chat with Sam just as much as I did. Okay, so I'm here with Sam Wiley at Melbourne Business School. So welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for inviting me to participate. My pleasure. So I might just start off if you wanted to share the listeners about yourself, about your story. Okay, well, um, let me work backwards and then I'll work forwards. So... I've been here at the Melbourne Business School for 12 years now. I came here in the middle of 2004. And before that, I was at Dartmouth, which is Ivy League University in the US for seven years. And before that, I'm just talking about my career here. I'll talk about other things in just a moment. Before that, I was a PhD student at London Business School, the Graduate School of the University of London. And before that, I was an intelligence officer with Australia's security service, ASIO, and before that, I did a few things and 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 I studied engineering at the University of Western Australia. So, let me take it forwards. From the beginning, I was born in Darwin. My mum was an architect and my dad was an engineer. They went up there in the late 1950s and stayed through the mid-60s, and we came down when I was very young. I can't really remember living in Darwin at all and grew up in Perth in Western Australia. Went to school there, went to the University of Western Australia. I've got two brothers and two sisters, so I'm from quite a big family. I'm actually the youngest of those five. And I met my beautiful wife, Tracy, at the uh, University of Western Australia. She, I had graduated and was doing a few things, and she was in her last year at UWA when we met. And then I had studied engineering at UWA, but I wasn't really cut out to be an engineer. I did it because I liked maths and physics and chemistry and the like. And But mostly I did it because many of the other men in my family were engineers. One of my two brothers is an engineer, a chemical engineer, and my dad was an engineer and his brother was an engineer and their dad was an engineer. And curiously, one of my sons, Gus, is uh, studying engineering at the University of Western Australia now. He's in his first year. So they're all engineers and they're all really natural engineers. You know, my son, Gus, he's like my dad. Recently, he built, Gus built himself, or I should say a couple of years ago, uh, when he was still in school, he built himself a skateboarding half pipe. And watching him do it <laughs> in the backyard, watching him do it, I just thought, you know, he's just like my dad. He's, the facility with mechanical things is uh, just astonishing. But I really wasn't like that. I wasn't cut from the same cloth and so I didn't do very well. I was lazy and I was unmotivated. And so I didn't do as well as I might have done, certainly not as well as I did in studying other things later on. So when I finished my engineering degree, I studied electrical power engineering. I decided I would do something else. So I took some time off and got some travel in. I worked on a railway gang for 
five months. That made me an absolute ball of muscle, which is when I met my wife, Tracy. So that was a very happy thing. Otherwise, that probably would never have worked out. And and I painted houses and started the business and did a few things. But during this process, I had decided to apply to join ASIO. They had moved from a tap-on-the-shoulder MI5-type model to a graduate recruitment model just the year before, the FBI-type graduate recruitment model. So they were advertising in the Australian newspaper, and I, I thought that would be interesting, that would match my you know, feeling that it would be good to do some public service, something for the nation, but also my interest in politics and, and the like. So I applied and the process took a long time to get all the security clearances and the like and and the selection process. But anyway, I went into the security service, went into their training program. Then I was I worked the whole time in counterterrorism. I was an analyst and then I was a case officer, meaning someone who actually runs operations and runs intelligence operations. And so I did that for six and a half years. And while I was doing that, and my wife, Tracy, worked for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet at that time, and we got married at that time. And while I was doing that, I thought, well, it's one thing to serve the nation. It's another thing to make some money. So I thought that I would eventually leave and become an investment banker because I'd always been interested in economics and wealth management and the like. Is that a big, was that a huge step in terms of direction? Well, it was, yes, it was, it'll probably come out as if it was well planned. It certainly wasn't unplanned, but it unfolded in a way. You know, I'm really pleased that, that I had the flexibility within me to change. You know, I didn't stick with, with something that I wasn't really cut out for, which was engineering. And, and I did navigate my way towards something which I really loved, which is economics. So, if you, if you end up in your career working on something that you really love for your whole career, that's always a combination of good luck and good management. Uh, and so I had a, you know, an equally large dose of, of both of those things. So I was based in Canberra and worked a fair bit outside of Canberra, but I was based in Canberra. And in Canberra, there was no MBA program, no good MBA program to speak of. You know, I knew I had to do an MBA and that I would go to the Melbourne Business School or to the Australian Graduate School of Management, which at that time was a good school. <laughs> I can say to my friends at the AGSM, or I'd go overseas to do it. And but I, but I lived in Canberra at the time, and I thought I'll just do some economics in order to because economics is always a part micro and macroeconomics, as many of your listeners will know, Dave is a part of every MBA and I thought I'll go to the Australian National University which has a fantastic economics school and I'll just do some economics and that will be and I'll get a credit against that when I do an MBA somewhere. Well anyway as soon as I started doing that I was hooked immediately and, and a big part of the reason was my well there, there was my innate interest in economics but but also the first teacher I had was Ian Harper who's been the productivity commissioner and and the head of the the their work commission, amongst many other things, but he was a finance professor then. He subsequently came to the Melbourne Business School, of course, and he was the head of the finance group here and, and then the acting dean uh, for a long time. It's a great pity he's not here uh, to this day, really. But anyway, the young Ian Harper was my first economics teacher, and he was just an absolute inspiration. And, you know, to this day, many of the things that have made me a successful teacher are things that I learned from 
from Ian, but his ability to so clearly articulate the power of economics to explain things that you see, but you don't have a framework for really understanding. He laid out a framework for just understanding so many things. The power and the beauty of it, it was really captivating. So I was hooked straight away. And then I thought, well, you know what? I'm still going to be an investment banker, but I'm going to be an economist as opposed to a banker in an investment bank. And then I applied for a – I had been studying a graduate diploma in economics. I applied for a Commonwealth scholarship to study a master's degree in economics. And uh, I received one and I went back for a year full-time or nine months as it was full-time. took me a while to disengage myself from my activities with the security service. But once I had done that about halfway through the year, really untangled myself from all of that and and was just a a full-time student back at university, I just thought, you know what, this is fantastic. I'm going to do this. So then investment banking was out the window. And it was about becoming right. an academic. Okay. So a real thirst for knowledge here. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, you know, I went back to school and really got the, the feeling of being at the university and, and the love of economics. So I thought I'll apply for PhD scholarships. And so I applied to a set of schools in the US and got a few offers. The only place I applied to outside the US was the London Business School. And they offered me a scholarship from Solomon Brothers. We should always think positively about Solomon Brothers because they gave me the scholarship to do my PhD. And so then – and Tracy could work in London and she couldn't immediately work in the States. And, the, and London Business School is a terrific school. So we went there and started my PhD there in 1992 and was there until 1996 and worked with Elroy Dimson. He was my th- uh, thesis advisor. And Narayan Nayik and James Dow, but mostly I worked with Elroy, who's a terrific guy and a terrific academic. And he is the he's the author of quite a famous book called The Triumph of the Optimist about the returns to different capital markets around the world throughout the ninth, uh, throughout the twentieth century. Uh, anyway, I was very interested in wealth management, so I worked on wealth management in my PhD, and and mostly I worked on on herding by portfolio managers why they all move in the same direction. There's a correlation in the trading of portfolio managers where they'll all buy into a particular stock or a particular sector and then they'll all sell out together. That's the the notion of herding. And the proper way to measure that and what causes it was was what I studied. The other that was an empirical study and also did a theoretical study. It's unusual to do both. Usually you do one or the other in your PhD and in hindsight, I should have just done one or the other. Right. It would have been faster and easier and and better all round. But I was interested in both. And so I worked – the other question that I worked on is when you should fire your portfolio manager if performance is bad. So you receive month by month or quarter by quarter uh, results on how well your portfolio manager is managing your money. And then you have to decide whether to keep or fire your portfolio manager uh, but you face costs of switching to a new portfolio manager and the optimal time to switch portfolio managers, uh, that's what that study was about. So uh, at the end of my time in London, 1996, Tracy and I had the first of our three children. Reuben was born in the, the Dick Whittington Hospital in in London. He was until the other day a European citizen and now he's a British citizen, which he's a bit distraught about. And then we went to, you know, they have a, a process where the people coming out of the best schools 
go to a big conference, you know, the 25 best schools graduate about 100 PhD students every year in finance and they there's a big conference usually in Chicago or New Orleans or, or San Francisco or, or New York or Boston, one of those cities. There's a big conference in January of every year and those 100 candidates or about 60 of them who are going into academia, about 40 of those 100 PhD students coming out of the best schools every year go straight into Wall Street or into right. the city of London. But the 60 better ones go into academia, can say without a hint of bias. Yeah. And the big schools go there and try and convince them to come to their school. And it's a little bit like the football draft, except it's except the best teams get the first pick. So Chicago and Wharton and yeah. Stanford and, and Harvard, MIT, they get the first pick. That's sort of the first round. And then the second round is is the next best set of schools, Duke and Northwestern, Columbia, Dartmouth, Berkeley, etc. Sorry if I've left your school out. Don't mean to insult anyone. Mm-hmm. That's the second round, and then and then there's you know there's another thirty or forty schools yeah. competing to to hire people at the best schools. Melbourne Business School goes there from time to time, but it's incredibly competitive to hire those people. So I went in the second round and went to you know in, went to to Dartmouth. You interviewed lots of schools. I went to lots of schools and presented my research and. And I got some offers and in the end, we decided to go to Dartmouth, which is, as I said, Ivy League University on the Connecticut River in New Hampshire, in Hanover, New Hampshire. It's exactly halfway between Boston and and Montreal, actually right up in the New England woods. It's a fantastically beautiful uh, place. So we were there for seven years. Other two children, Gus and Helen, were born in the U.S., Gus can vote in the in the election, which is uh, in a few days' time. If he had it registered, I couldn't convince him to register, unfortunately. Otherwise, he could have voted in New Hampshire because they're both U.S. citizens. So we were there. I continued to work on research, of course. Started to teach courses on economics and especially on banking, and worked hard and wrote quite a lot. And then, after seven years, we had intended only really to stay for two years, and. But we stayed for seven years because it was so terrific. And when we came back, we moved to Perth. Tracy wanted to live in Perth, and you know I'm happy with that too, although I'd be quite happy to move to Melbourne as well. But in any case, Tracy wanted to live in Perth, and I wanted to work in Melbourne because I rang a few people up. By that time, Ian Harper was the acting dean of the Melbourne Business School, and I spoke to him and I spoke to Bruce Grundy, who's a very prominent international finance academic and, you know, asked them about what they thought my options were in Australia and they encouraged me to come and visit the Melbourne Business School and I have been here um, ever since. But flying backwards and forwards from Perth where I live, I've probably flown across Australia 300 times in the in the last 12 years. So I come here every second week. I'm in Melbourne for four or five days and I'm back at home for nine or ten days. And I, you know, I fly here between 20 and 25 times per year, and I'm here about 100 days a year. And when I'm back in Perth, I'm working away writing things. So when I moved back to, when we moved back to Australia, I started over time to do less research and to do more teaching. You know, I have a great love of teaching. I have a very didactic impulse inside me, which uh, only teaching uh, lets out. Yeah. You know, if any of you, anyone, anyone listening who's been in one of my classes, whether it was a good class or not, you would certainly agree that that I'm not faking it in terms of how much I love teaching or how much I love finance. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. You know, I've uh, certainly 
I've sat through two of your courses and I uh, yeah, certainly know you can feel the passion coming through. Yeah, I, I really love it. I love finance. I love teaching. And so I started to do more of that, teaching more subjects, doing corporate teaching, started working with a lot of big corporations on strategy with the leadership of, of, of those firms, which I do more to this day, and also getting involved in public inquiries like the Financial Systems Inquiry. Senate and House of Representatives inquiries, etc. So more of that public intellectual role, writing more, speaking more, uh, as opposed to doing academic research. And that's what I do to this day. So I am here at the Business School, a principal fellow, teach classes here and involved in, in activities of the school. I own a company called Windlestone Education, through which I do consulting and, and teach one or two courses. I have a course that I teach for investors which is called the finance education for investors course and that's you know that's where i am professionally so you know in the in the next few years i'm going to work more on writing books so i'm actually in the process of writing two books well one of which is at the beginning and one of which is close to the end at the moment i'm going to concentrate on that more um, going forward right fantastic i look forward to um yeah having a read so just uh had a, had a couple of questions uh, when you're looking back, when you're Ian Harper, who sounds like your mentor and his ability to clearly articulate, is that something you've adopted now? Because that's sort of one of the things I look back on those financial management classes here at MBS and it's, you know, just the clear, the clear articulation of complex, whether it's put calls or derivatives yep, or, yep. you know, there's so much complexity in our financial markets which warrants all these experts. Yeah. But being able to cut through that and clearly articulate, is that where you've got that from? Well, certainly Ian was a great example of that, and he has been something of a mentor, although I should say that if I was giving some advice to my younger self, then one part of advice I'd give is to listen more to what other people have to say because I didn't listen enough uh, when I was a young guy. And, I and you know, there were uh, quite a number of people who, who gave me a lot of good advice, most of which I ignored. Right. So it would be fruitless me writing something to my younger self because my younger self would just ignore it, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. But look, Ian was a terrific example of reducing, breaking down very complex ideas into bite-sized pieces and presenting them in the right context and the right order for people to understand them. And that takes a lot of effort and a lot of skill to do that. I mean, great teachers like Ian make it look easy, but it's not easy to do that. And but it is a mark of people's understanding. Look, in finance, I always say to people that you should insist that people explain finance and economics to you in plain English because everything can be explained. I mean, there are elements of finance that really are rocket science, but they're such a small part compared to the mainstream of what we deal with in finance yeah. that it really you should insist that people explain everything in plain English. And if they can't do that... It's, it's because of one of two reasons. Either, either what they're saying is wrong, and that's why they can't explain it in plain English, or because they don't fully understand it. Yeah. And either of those, people who really understand at the, at the deepest level and in many different, from many different directions what they're talking about can explain those things in, in plain English. Sure. It's shocking sometimes, Dave, when you, when you listen to the Nobel Prize winners talking about their research it's remarkable their ability to describe incredibly complex things in just a few paragraphs. Now, obviously, they're not going into great detail or 
describing it in very close relief, but still their ability to cut through to the essence of what their breakthrough was and for lay people to understand it, it's really a testament to how deeply they understand what it is that they're talking about. Yeah, sure. And so with your advice to yourself, was that in the, the financial sort of theme as well or is this more just general advice from people you respected? Oh, you mean, well, no, I didn't get a lot of good financial advice from people, but I'm sure I would have ignored that yeah. in any case because I ignored almost every kind of advice. I have a really independent, almost libertarian impulse yeah. in me. <laughs> so there's nothing I can do about that except uh, be true to it. Yeah. So, Sam, you know, travelling around the, the globe, what it sounds like, and going to all these business schools, how have you applied this sort of in your own financial philosophy and has that, you know, how did that benefit you in terms of, you know, continuing on that this journey? Well, do you mean in terms of my own personal investments? Yeah, so you're learning all about investments and yeah. how to manage money, at the, you know, and you obviously consult at the corporate level. Yeah. But then applying that in a practical, individual way. Yeah. Find that. Well, look, you see how specialised people are. When you work in the finance industry for a long time, you see how specialised people are, and that actually makes you less inclined to to manage your own wealth or to be active in managing your wealth. So, for instance, much of my wealth is invested in stocks, which is – and I'm not about to start giving financial yeah, yeah, advice yeah. here and <laughs> should recognize that everything that's in this – in this, this, uh, In this pod – nothing in this pod represents financial <laughs> advice. So, look, the studies in academia and also just seeing how expert people are in the market means that you either need to – employ their services, but it's hard for people to earn back their fees because the market's so competitive and efficient, or you just need to buy and hold, which is very much my strategy. I just go for diversification, long-term investment in the stock market, and, and buy and hold. Yeah. Don't pay a lot of fees. Don't um, get into a lot. Don't incur a lot of transaction costs um, either. But it's been property and investment in shares for me principally, and then a matter of getting my structuring right. So by structures, I mean whether what type of superannuation fund you have, whether you have a family trust, which we do, whether you have a corporation, etc. So what yep. kind of structures you own your assets in and stream your income through. So getting those things right has been very important as well. But yeah, those things have been an yeah. important consideration. But then, but then the other thing is, Dave, of course, that most people – create wealth not through investing i mean they grow if they're if they're sensible they grow wealthy slowly but surely through their investing most people create wealth through the businesses that they create and look all of the people almost everyone i've spoken to in business over the years which is many hundreds of people thousands of people really everyone has taught me something and that has allowed me to to start a business and to and to, to you know to grow that business to some extent it's not Google, but but it has been, but it has been pretty good. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, great. So you you sort of touched on your advice to yourself. So thanks for that. The other question I had was, yeah, could you share with the listeners any habits that have contributed to your success or gone the other way that you've uh, wiped out? Um, if you want to share one? Yeah, so I'd say some habits that I work on that I'm not necessarily terrific at, but I definitely work on them, are being focused in what I do, at getting good at something and staying focused on that because focus is a, is a 
is definitely something I've had to work on in my career because I'm just interested in so many things. It's right. easy to become engaged in a lot of things, but but intense focus on completing particular projects is a really a really important thing. So what, uh, what sort of things do you do to I guess intensify that focus? Or? I work on blocking other things out, right. and and in managing my time effectively, yeah. principally. But also, you know, a, a habit that really works for me is that I get up early in the morning when you're less likely to be disturbed and, you know, your body, you've got a full charge of energy and to spend that energy on the most important thing. And so, I, you know, I work on that every day. Get up early, exercise. Those of you who know me personally, it probably you think looking at Sam, it looks as though he doesn't exercise that much, but I actually do, do quite a lot of exercise. So get up early, exercise. Spend that full charge of energy on on the most important thing and and the the things that I'm trying to achieve in the in the near term and the medium term. Right. Uh, but that but it's a constant challenge to do that. You know, I'd say a couple of other important habits for me are to visualize. It's taken me a long time to realize that when people say you've got to visualize your goals and that you really move towards the things, the images that you hold in your mind, it's taken me a long time to realize. Well, it took me a long time to realize that that isn't just all baloney. That's full reality. Nothing's truer, really, than you move to what you visualize in your mind. And, you and you know, you act in a way that you talk to yourself on a, on a day-by-day basis. So I've, I've started to do that over the years in a much more structured way to really fix in my mind the things, the direction that I want to go and the, and the endpoints that I want to reach. And then, and then you sort of automatically move towards that. So what what are you actually doing there, uh, Sam? Are you sitting down, eyes closed, visualizing? Or yeah, look, look, I do as a separate notion. I do meditate. When I was I was very lucky actually that when I was in my mid twenties, my wife Tracy took me to a session to learn about meditation, which she thought that I would think was all baloney, and that I was only coming along to make her happy, <laughs> which I would have done anyway. Would have done yeah. it to make her happy, but actually. It really worked for me. I found that I could meditate and reach a very calm state and, and, and let go of a lot of stress. I found that worked for me straight away. And actually, that has worked to this day. So I don't do that on a, in a really structured or day-by-day basis, but I do do it when I need to do it. And it's an incredibly helpful tool. So there's that, and but the structured use of visualization and affirmations of of what you want to be, you know, I have done that for a long time. Um, so I do give myself time to visualize where it is that I want to go and try and and be as as precise and realistic in, in visualizing what it is that I want to achieve. It sounds like I've been talking to personal coaches or something for <laughs> day and I haven't. But it, but it, look, it's taken me a long time to realize that. That kind of stuff, which, as I said, you know, my dad, who was a super practical engineer, he said, "Oh, that's all baloney. Just yeah. get stuck into it and whatever else." But, but it, but actually, that's a very important thing. And it seems to be the default when you talk about visualization. Your default is no, that's baloney. But it sounds like you've actually seen it work, and so you're oh yeah, and seen it work for me. Yep. Yeah, definitely. definitely, definitely. I wish I had have um, done that from an earlier age. But you know, everyone's on their own journey. Yeah, I feel like I've done a lot of things. You know, one thing I inherited from my dad is a pretty happy outlook on things, so I don't dwell too much on things I haven't done well yeah. in the past. Right, yeah, no point. 
Okay, so you were you were looking at me like you had another uh, successful habit, or no? I wasn't thinking of anything in in particular. Okay. I have no, I didn't have anything in particular. I was going to say, Dave. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I might just ask you for the quote. So, did you have an inspirational quote you wanted to share with the listeners? Well, I don't have a very inspirational one, but I but I have an important one, I think. Or, or not an important one, just a favourite one. And it's from Edmund Burke, who's a famous conservative thinker. I'm not a conservative myself. I'm a, a liberal in the small l version of liberalism. But his quote is that all it takes for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. And you know, in some ways, it's it's a it's a quote about entropy. Although I'm sure he wouldn't have put it that way, or or even we could say it's the second law of thermodynamics that the world moves from order towards disorder automatically, and to the to maintain things that are ordered, or, or even to maintain things that are beautiful, it takes energy, and, and to maintain a, a civic society, and especially to try and make our society better and better, it takes a lot of energy, and it takes everyone's energy. And and that's what he's saying. It's it's not enough. I mean, you can't you can't say, well, I didn't do the wrong thing. I mean, to have not done the right thing and got engaged and to push back on bad things is um, is really essential. So I haven't done his quote justice. No, but, I think you did. But like it is. It. Uh, but it's you know I think it's an important and central one. Yeah, I like it. Thanks for that. Okay, and just on the on the uh, theme of sharing, uh, so is there a book that you don't know you've got two yeah. which you're working on, and it's good. Well, I'll tell you a little story about a book. My favourite book ever, which I only read recently, two or three years ago, is Fyodor Dostoevsky's "The Brothers Karamazov." Maybe I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. One of my Russian yeah. friends told me that I was pronouncing it incorrectly, but I pronounce it "The Brothers Karamazov." And you know, I was speaking to Don O'Sullivan, whose, whose office is just down the corridor from me at Melbourne Business School, saying to him one day, as much as I love economics, it does sort of drive the spirit out of you. It, it's um, because it's not about, because it's not so much about personal relationships or personal empathy, because it's about numbers and models and, and dollars and cents and the like. As much as I love it, how much it explains and how important it is, it does sort of drive the spirit out of you when you work on that for, for 25 years. And Don said that he, that he understood what I was talking about. Don's a marketing professor. And that the antidote to it was to read Dostoevsky. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I didn't really know what he meant, but, but he's a wise man, Don, so I took his advice. And I actually listened to Crime and Punishment. And then I listened, because Don recommended to listen to that first, and then I listened to The Brothers Karamazov. And Crime Punishment's a great book, but The Brothers Karamazov was even greater. I mean, he is, Dostoevsky's work is, it's sort of, if economics drains the spirit from you a little bit over time, well, that sort of, his work sings the spirit back into you. You know that that Max Weber, the the great sociologist, he coined the expression that that commerce over time had led to the disenchantment of the world. And he, he meant that the bureaucratizing, structured approach of everything in commerce, that that led to, to the loss of spirit in the world because everything had to be on time, everything had to be done by the rules. There was, you know, the word disenchantment, to enchant means to sing into, it's a French word. And it really means to enchant something, means to sing the spirit into it. And so to disenchant 
something is to drain the spirit from it. And so he said that commerce over the last 400 years, the organizing, bureaucratizing force of commerce, as great a force as it had been for good in the world, it had drained the spirit from the world. It had disenchanted the world. And and Dostoevsky's work, reading that, is just the exact opposite. It's so much about human spirit that it is, it's a really revitalizing experience to, to read that book, The, the Brothers Charismatic. So I absolutely loved it. Right, okay. What? So the an- antidote to, um, yeah, the finance or economics is sucking the life out of us. Which, well, uh, you know how much I love economics, so <laughs> I do. I'm never going to talk it down. But <laughs> but you do need to, to mix it with other things, and Dostoyevsky is a great thing to mix with uh, with anything. He has another fantastic book called The Idiot, which I haven't read yet, but people say it, it that, that that's a wonderful book as well. Right, okay. I'll, I'll link to that uh, on, on the website. Okay, thanks. And um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your time today. I know you've got a, another meeting to get to now. But, um, yeah, just wanted to say thanks for coming on The Mentalist. If people are listening in and they're resonating with what you're saying, uh, how would they go about, you know, contacting you or contacting maybe... Oh, they should connect with me on LinkedIn. Okay. And I have a newsletter, which I don't write as often as I should because I just have many other commitments. But I do have a newsletter, which is very prosaically called Sam Wiley's Finance Newsletter. And if you connect with me on LinkedIn, then I'll send you the newsletter. Uh, so that's the best thing to do. Send me an invitation to connect on on LinkedIn, and then we'll be connected permanently. So thanks for inviting me, Dave. It's a great initiative, this. Bravo. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, as I said, yeah, when I was surveying people about who they wanted to hear on the show, your name came up repetitively. So I think there's a few NDS students in the listenership and I'm sure they would like to get to know you a bit more on a personal level too. So thank you very much. Um, and for everyone listening out there, tune in again for another great episode. Otherwise check out further links to this show and others on www.mentalist.com.au. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List with your host David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, The best way to support the show is to take just a few seconds to leave a rating and comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at www.mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.